Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston. We are recording this episode on a Friday morning, uh, a few days after Manchester United crashed out of Europe, out of the Champions League on Tuesday with defeat against Bayern Munich. It was a bit of a lifeless performance. And here we are again to dissect and get into another inquest, Samuel. Um, how are you? Not bad, thank you. I, I don't even think they crashed out. It was almost as if they just, the, the car came It's a bit of a whimper, it. wasn't it? Just, they stalled it and didn't bother to, to restart it. Yeah, it was, it very much was. I think that was the most depressing thing, as we, we've just talked about before we went on air. Um, it was a depressing sense of inevitability, really, from the first whistle. United didn't really look like scoring. Um, they had to win, and even then it mightn't have been enough because all eyes were on the Copenhagen and Galatasaray game. Um, Bayern Munich scored in the second half. They had chances in the first half. Leroy Sane, I don't know what he was thinking. He should have scored probably twice, actually, mm. in the first half. But look, a really, really poor and disappointing performance, and it just wasn't good enough, was it? No, the ap- the apathy was was rife, um, even in the stands. I mean, there was the usual stand up if you hate Glazer's rendition, and the majority in front of the breast box couldn't be bothered to stand up. and And I get that because it, it is a pointless chant now um, that they're not going anywhere. A lot of fans have been ground down by it, but I even thought at full time, and you knew it wasn't going to be a cacophony of boos. There were boos, but it wasn't. It wasn't outrage. And when when the game was in the last 20 minutes, I was thinking they're 1-0 down to Bayern Munich. They're going out of the Champions League. They're going to finish bottom of their group with a minus goal difference, with four defeats, having conceded 15 goals, which no other English team has, has done in the Champions League group stage. Outrage would be justified here. And there wasn't outrage. It was just they've they've become so accustomed to watching United underperform, underachieve, disappoint them. And it felt pretty soulless. This this the group stage they were involved in by and large was absorbing. It was dramatic. And on the one occasion where they needed to have a dramatic night, it was utterly undramatic. It was a must-win game. They barely tried to win it. They'd never looked like winning it. Bayern Munich never looked like losing it. Uh this Rasmus Hoyland, who's a striker, didn't have a single touch in the Bayern Munich area. They had one attempt on target, which was a pot shot from the left back in the first half, which was a, a routine stop for, for, for Manuel Neuer. And at no point did you have a sense of, did you feel a sense of belief among United supporters that they could salvage the situation? And it was damning. Watching Newcastle the following evening, that's the way a team should go out of Europe. If you to go out of Europe, go out all guns blazing. They hit the post um, in the last 15 minutes. Uh, Isaac had a really good chance where he hit thin air. Rafael Liao hit the post as, as Newcastle were becoming more open because they were going for it. They, they had a go. Uh, it, it didn't come off, but I think supporters respected their approach and the fact that they did really... You know, they, they strove to win that game. They actually scored in it. They went 1-0 up in it. You didn't get that with United. And that is probably more disappointing than the actual defeat in that the way they went out was essentially it was a betrayal of the club's ethos to play that way. And I thought when when Ten Hag was bringing Palestrian and Kobe Mainu on, I just thought this is descending into a soccer aid game now where you're just, you're giving young players some experience. Hannibal Mejbri was another one who came on and you're giving him experience. And this is a this is a must-win Champions League group stage game to ensure that at the very you know, at the very least that you don't go out of Europe if you win. 
and you could exert pressure on Copenhagen. Had United gone one nil up, what are they going to feel like in, in, in at, at the Park and Stadium? Both both teams because they both could have qualified as runners up. But United just didn't let a glove on them. This this was a night that they had to go out all guns blazing, and they barely pulled the trigger. Why was it such a lacklustre performance then? I think, I mean, that's the million dollar question, but has it got something to do maybe with the Bournemouth game? You get hammered 3-0 at home against lower league, Premier League opposition. You welcome Bayern Munich, who are fantastic, among the favourites to win the Champions League. Is it a mentality thing where the players have locked at that and thought, hang on a minute, they're better than us. But Bayern Munich didn't just, they didn't leave first gear. They were just knocking it around very easily, not under pressure. United, as we've said, didn't look like scoring, never threatened, had just one shot on target when they needed the win. And that's just unforgivable. As you said, you have to have a goal in those circumstances, don't you? The, the, the game plan of containment was, was logical up to a point. You, given that they conceded four against Bayern in, in Munich back in September, four against Copenhagen, they, Galatasaray scored six times against them in two games. I thought, okay, I get that. You want to stay in the game. You want to stay in the competition. At half time, they still had a chance of qualifying. It was nil-nil in both games, but there had to come a point where United would cut loose and that they would have a go at Bayern Munich, where they had to have a period where there would be a flurry of chances at the very least, goal-scoring opportunities uh, that would enable them to to go ahead. But they never did that. They just decided containment, containment, containment then, of course, there was, inevitably there was going to be a goal in the other game. That was in the 58th minute. But you didn't get the sense that that spread across the crowd because the, the atmosphere was, was was just humdrum. It was a humdrum night. On you don't blame supporters because the players just lack belief for me. No, and, and that transmits to the stands, doesn't it? And in fairness, there, were, there was a contingent next to the Bayern Munich away um, followers who sang non-stop and were quite loud. So the atmosphere from where, where we were sat probably sounded better than it did for maybe th- three quarters or, or two thirds of the supporters, United Sports in the stadium, because we were, we were quite near them. But you never got a sense that, um, that, that they were aware of the Copenhagen result or the players were aware of the Copenhagen um, scoreline. It didn't seem like anybody from United's dugout would have ever been communicating that anyway. And as I said, it was just the, the whole group stage was so dramatic. And then to go, for, to shift from that, to something so un- as undramatic as the other night, I just thought it was it was it was a betrayal of, of the way United played. You, you go back to all the other group stage eliminations from the Champions League, bar ninety four, because they'd gone out with with a game to spare. But Benfica two thousand five, Baal in twenty eleven, Wolfsburg twenty fifteen, uh, Leipzig in twenty twenty. As 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 dismal as they were, and as shambolic as they were on those evenings. They took it to the wire. There was one goal in it. In Leipzig three years ago, they were 3-0 down after about 60 or 70 minutes. They bring Paul Pogba on, whose agent had said the day before, it's over for him at United. And Paul Pogba is the one who's almost salvaging their Champions League campaign. Uh, And everyone knows how little he cared for United. Uh, I suppose that's a reflection of how bad it's got that Paul Pogba actually did more to try and keep United in the Champions League group say three years ago than any of the players did the other night. Just quickly apologise to listeners as well if you can hear any work or noise going on at MEN Towers. There's some uh, construction work going outside uh, the reception. Um, Samuel the midfield was very poor again, I think it's fair to say. Tomlin and Amrabat uh, started with Bruno Fernandes. 
that Sane chance at the very start of the match, he just kind of skipped through and where was the midfield? It was non-existent. That was an early warning saying um, Sane had another chance, as we said later on. Um, but we've talked about Hammerbat and he's probably not good enough to play for Manchester United. He had a good game against Chelsea, um, who were probably the poorest visitors to Old Trafford this season anyway. They're in a worse state as a football club than United. There you go. Um, but I mean, he was outclassed, wasn't he, uh, on Tuesday night? Yes, and it's not a surprise that someone who's not a household name worldwide before the World Cup uh, and then gets a move essentially on the back of a World Cup and the manager knowing him from coaching him once upon a time at Utrecht is not up to it for Manchester United. And we've said this ad nauseum that there were there were people at United that were sceptical of signing Amrabat. But for United to yield and yield to Ten Hag's wishes and let's, let's just consider Amrabat was coming to the end of and is coming to the end of his contract at Fiorentina Fiorentina got a 10 million euro loan fee and if United want to pay buy him permanently it's a 20 million euro fee so it's 30 million euros and also covering his wages during that period that the money that Fiorentina would have saved and United agreed to that and you see the way he plays he's not good enough for, that was he's not good enough for Manchester United he's, he would not be good enough for a lot of teams in England as well I think that was just I mean it was desperation wasn't it um, it, it was a final day of the window it, it wasn't it wasn't that he was someone that they'd lined up but United yeah. were talking about there were 10 midfielders that we're looking at we all knew essentially the manager has just whittled that 10 that number that mythical um, shortlist of 10 players down to one and it's someone that he managed at Utrecht six or seven years ago whenever it was and we all knew that then people at United would have known that then but nobody at United was strong enough to say no to him and they have said no to him over well they certainly did over Hakim Ziyech last year and he was someone who of course uh, Ten Hag coached but they didn't say no this time and they've, they've said yes more often than they said no they've, they've backed Ten Hag to the hilt and that that's another reason why he's on um yeah, you know, he's he's on the rocks and that his the, the recruitment under him has been appalling. And Amrabat look, he, he doesn't lack effort. Uh, nobody's saying that he's 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 a he's a bad influence in the dressing room whatsoever. He's he's committed. You saw him at the end of the game, he was he was on his backside, he was clearly crestfallen. But you know, you, you, it's it's okay. You know, pe- people can see that it, a lot of players do care, but that's still not going to compensate for their ability or their lack of ability. There was a tweet that said, "The good players at United don't care enough, and the bad players, players United care too much." Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's probably quite. That was a good summary, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. There's probably something in that, with with the odd exception here and there. Uh, Tenog's comments after the game were incredibly interesting as well. Um, he said, look, we didn't lose it today, which is fair enough. It was uh, a really disappointing group stage. But he said, look, the performance was very good. That's a direct quote. And he said, we didn't deserve to lose. Um, this is a manager who prides himself on high standards, on... Good is not good enough. Good is not good enough. And to say that this performance was very good was quite bizarre. It raised my eyebrows. I think a lot of people on social media reacted to that and they thought it was a bit bizarre as well. And I think that's the kind of stuff that if you, if you keep on making those comments... Suppose it gradually. You're in trouble. Yeah, you're, you're definitely in trouble. It's happened with the other managers. I mean, 
when when Mourinho, when they were knocked out of the Champions League by Sevilla and he came in and he was like, I sat in this chair with Porto having knocked Man United out. I sat in this chair with Real Madrid having knocked Man United out. It's nothing new to them. It, it caused outrage pretty much among United supporters because I thought, how dare he say that about us? And in fairness, he didn't. He did himself no favours at the time. That quote now is not... It's not inflammatory. It's it's a statement of fact. And, and Mourinho's football heritage sermon from later on that week, uh, it, it endures because as rich a history as Manchester United have in the European Cup, and they do undoubtedly, they've only got three European Cups to show for it. And they're not among the European elite. They haven't been for a, a long, long time. Their record since they last got to the final in 2011, which... I mean, during that campaign, it was, you look at the teams they played against to get there. It was, it was, it was not a good Manchester United team. It was probably the worst champions under Ferguson, but there were some rather flattering records or stats that gave them the aura of a great Manchester United side. And there's an element of revisionism as well. But since that final, they've got to the quarterfinals twice. They've gone out of the group stage in four of the last nine Champions League campaigns, I think it is. And the two times they got to the quarterfinals were under their two worst managers, post-Ferguson, in um, permanent managers, I should say, in, in Moyes and, and Solskjaer. And I, I really struggled to see them in the Champions League next season. That's happened too frequently. They're in the Champions League one season, the next season they're out of it. They might be out of Europe altogether next season. There's every chance of it, given how competitive, ultra-competitive the Premier League is this season. And look, we were before the game the other night. We were talking about this, like, and I'd, I'd gone on record as before saying that you know, finish second or finish fourth, don't want the Europa League. And now they, they finish fourth. You look at it and you think, I mean, January looks quite barren anyway because of the fixture list and the quirk of this winter break and the Wolves game being in being on a Thursday night. And of course, they're not going to be in the Europa League either. And there are going to be a lot of free midweek spare. And actually, you think from a work perspective and how much we live for matches and going to Old Trafford or going to, um, you know, grounds on the continent. Actually, it's 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 definitely not a good thing that United are out of Europe altogether. I mean, for the bottom line, chances of a trophy, it's now the FA Cup, the Europa League. Can you, I mean, they could pull out of the bag in the FA Cup, but there's a cup competition, anything that happened. But... You think it was more likely to get to the last stages of the Europa League? I mean, the Europa League, I think, is a more, it's certainly a, a better competition this season. There are better teams in it than last season. Yeah. It was, it really did open up for United last season. They, they screwed up royally against Sevilla, having been two 0 up with what was it, ten minutes to go in the first leg, and then they end up losing five two on aggregate. But it would have represented a decent chance for them. It would have represented um, a possible big night um, in, in the playoffs as they had against Barcelona because they would have been playing um, playing one of the, the runners-up from the Europa League. And you look at some of those group stage runners-up. I mean, had they, they could have got Roma if, if they'd finished third in Group A. There'd have been a hell of a lot to go out there. And obviously with the Mourinho factor, Lukaku factor, etc. But obviously it's not going to, it's not going to happen. And... Um, and, and supporters will will be dreading the prospect of no European trips um, in in the spring and and possibly no European trips next season either. I mean, that that's that's happened I think once in the last thirty odd years since since they won the um, since they won the FA Cup in in nineteen ninety and got back into Europe because obviously there was that five year period where English clubs were banned from European competition after the Heisel disaster. 
But the only time they've had a season since uh, devoid of any European football was in Van Gaal's first season after finishing seventh under Moyes. And if you finish seventh now, I think you pretty much you are guaranteed to get into European competition. But you can't even be certain of that with United because, as again, some of us were discussing in the press room before the game the other night, there are probably, arguably, seven teams better than them in the Premier League at the moment. We've talked about Tenog, uh contradicting his standards and who he is and what he stands for with his comments after the game. I thought it was fascinating to see Luke Shaw come off and Harry Maguire come off with injuries. We'll come on to that a bit later. We'll look ahead to Liverpool. Obviously, uh, for Ryan and Evans, where they were playing, that was so interesting because the whole time, Tenog has said for Evans yeah. played over Ryan because he can't play on the left side. And yet, when Evans came on, Evans was the right-sided centre-half and Varane was the left-sided centre-half. What is that about? It doesn't make any sense. I think it's a question that Laurie Whitwell uh, or Carl Anker <laughs> or, or our other colleagues from, uh, from The Athletic could ask him. But in fairness, it's, it, it is a question that I would be interested to hear his answer to. I mean, th- there was one last season where it was a kind of a similar niche question where at goal kicks, why... Why was an outfield player passing the ball to De Gea? Why wasn't it not the other way around? And it was something that Newcastle rumbled them with. Um, I think Gary Neville even did a segment on it on, on Monday Night Football about how Newcastle were the really on yeah. United at goal kicks. But with that, um, I mean, Evans came in for for Maguire and, and, and perhaps he just felt, well, Varane has run started the game there, so he might as well continue there rather than switching it. But as you say it was still a, a contradiction of what he's said this season. And that's another problem with Ten Hag. I've thought for quite some time now, he is becoming a walking contradiction with a lot of the changes he's making, a lot of the decisions he's making. He's talking about Rasmus Hoyland's workload. Garnacho, who's younger, has started 10 games in a row or 11 games in a row. The other night it was Maguire. Fair enough, the centre-half doesn't run as much, but it was his 14th game in a row. And I imagine Maguire, until that buying game, had played 19... 90 minutes in all those games as well. Uh, Bruno Fernandes has started in every Premier League and Champions League game so far this season. The, only two. the most minutes of any player yeah. in Europe. So and, and that's been the case pretty much since he came in at United yeah. as well. He, he has barely missed a game. So you talk about workload with, with Rasmus Hoyland and oh, I think it's a good idea to bring Anthony Marshall in today against Bournemouth. And it, it just doesn't, it doesn't stack up. And I know players have different conditioning and Hoyland came to the club with with a back problem and you wonder if there's still a bit of an issue there. But that's another example of, of Ten Hag contradicting what he said. And, you know, I go back to his his maxim last season of good is not good enough. And that was one of the reassuring things about watching United, that they would win a game and Ten Hag could actually be quite critical of a player's performance or aspects of uh, the performance as a collective. And now he's saying, he's delusionally saying how well they have played after losing. And I, I did the piece in, in midweek. I'm, unfortunately, he is starting to sound like Louis van Gaal. And van Gaal was, I mean, he, he was delusional, but he had the charisma with it as well. And at least with van Gaal, right, you can look at his team. I know the football was bloody soul destroying sometimes, but you can see what he was trying to do. They had an actual distinguishable style of play, a philosophy with Ten Hag at the moment. That's been a criticism all season. You can't exactly see what the, team, what the players are doing, what the message is. And that's a huge concern, a huge concern. I think the other night you just thought, are they, 
is it, is it just the counter attack? Is, yeah. is it just breakaways? And that's as we've as we've said before, that's that's no different from how Solskjaer really oversaw a lot of his his best wins. Or certainly when United came up against uh, the the elite, he got some good results against them because that's how they they operated. I mean, I think Gary Neville has touched upon this uh, a little bit in terms of back. I think he said that. Van Gaal is the only United manager post Ferguson who has had who's given an identity to the team, and I thought to to an extent, but it's it was so soporific. With I think they went, I think the the scoreboard end went from September to February without seeing a goal at that end in his second season. <laughs> but that's what it was. It was all lateral passing. Yeah. There was no. There was no risk taking. There were they, they barely scored any goal. Any goals? I think the top scorer that season was Marshall on, on seventeen. United would do well to get any of their players to hit hit that number the way it's going at the moment. Um, Marshall had certainly scored a lot more goals than um, than Hoyland had at this point in his first season. And so there are parallels in the you know Dutch manager progressive first season, second season it starts spiraling winter of discontent out of the Champions League group stage, lack of goals. Unfortunately, you know some of us have well the can't some of us can remember well the, there's that but there's <laughs> that the but they they did they did um, they did get into the FA Cup final yeah. as they um, as they did in Van Gaal's second season and you you hope for United's sake and especially their fans' sake that. The players are at least motivated that whatever they may think of the manager, as was the case under Bengal, that they would still, if not play for the manager, play for themselves and play for the glory of possibly winning a trophy and, and winning an FA Cup. We'll leave it there for part one anyway, Samuel, and we'll be back in a moment for part two. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, we've talked about how disappointing this European campaign has been. And at the end of the day, the book does stop at the manager. But yeah, there's no appetite, I think, to see Tenog sacked because one, there's no viable alternatives really out there. And two, it'll be under the same ownership until we have Ratcliffe coming in at Ineos. It's, it's going to be pointless, really, isn't it? Um, regarding the alternatives, you look at that list. I mean, Graham Parr has been linked. <clears throat> Zidane's always being linked for the job. It's really not inspiring. And it, I think that makes a case. You've got to stick with Tenog probably to the end of the season. Well, unless it gets more toxic and assess from there. It's probably the sensible thing to do. I saw a manager this week who I would, I think would be good for United, but he's not attainable at the moment. That's too cool. Uh, he's a compelling talker, which obviously yeah, somewhat... Yeah, journalist hat on. You want a compelling talker, but everywhere he goes, he he's he's won things. Uh, he's driven. He's going to be non-compliant, which I think United needs as well, which they've had from Ten Hag to an extent. But and and although Bayern Munich coach has quite a short shelf life, and I got the impression being in Tuchel's pretty much press conference in the week that he spoke. I mean, his English is were perfect. He 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 used it also as an occasion that. I could see myself back in England at some point in the future. Well, I, I said to you, I always get the impression when he speaks about Manchester United, he talks with such respect. Oh, he was. You can definitely see himself as a United. He United spoke about, future. he used the word aura about United in his pre-match press conference. And it, I, I, I think he would be, he would be ideal for United in, in a lot of ways, but is he attainable at the moment? No, a lot would have to happen there. But as you, as you rightly said, 
in terms of the state of flux the club is in because this strategic review is still not ended and the Ineos stake is still yet to be ratified, that offers Ten Hag security in that the chief executive, Patrick Stewart, is in there on an interim basis. The football director, uh, John Murta, has no appetite to um, want to dismiss Ten Hag and the chances are he's also on borrowed time as well in his position. And essentially, the sole power broker at that club is Joel Glazer, who has not attended a game in nearly five years. And something drastic, as bad as things are, something drastic would have to happen for Ten Hag um, to, to, to not be United manager this time next week. Now, he's going somewhere where, unfortunately for him, um, drastic things have happened to United I, I, in recent I mean, years. Look, 7 0 last time at Anfield, 4 0 time before that. Let's say they lose 3 0, 4 0. Still good, man. No, no, no. What, he what won't be sacked. That's what I mean. But this, this is this is also a failure of of Manchester United that we are talking about, and we had this with Solskjaer in his final weeks. Does this result constitute a sacking? They were thrashed two 0 by City in Solskjaer's last penultimate game. Uh, it was last home game, but his penultimate game in charge. And on that day, United had more on, more attempts on target at their own goal than they did at City's goal. But because City only in inverted commas one two nil. It was it was all in. Like, yeah. November internationals were, come, were they were going into the internationals as well. It's like that's the time where you sack a manager. No, we only lost two nil to City, and Guardiola was even asked after the game by by Jeff Shreves on on Sky Sports. He said, "Are you not disappointed to have only scored two? And he said, "No, it's okay, it's okay." And then of course two weeks later, Watford put four past United. And the supporters decide, you know, enough is enough. We're going to have to boo you here. And they did boo Solskjaer when he went over to the away end. And at that point, it's game over. Um, and they, they, they couldn't, you know, I mean, his, his position was untenable anyway. But United seemed to be the only club who could accept a manager's position being untenable and doing nothing about it or certainly being dilatory in their planning. And they were caught short there with Solskjaer. He, he got a new contract in the summer. And Richard Arnold had said he, he was bringing phenomenal success. Don't know what that was. And that was in the March. And when they got hammered 5-0 by Liverpool, the club literally did not have a contingency plan to replace him. They started to formulate a plan after that and still incurred bad results against City and Watford. And then four week, I think it was four weeks on from the Liverpool game, he, he was sacked. But that's how long it can take from a result which essentially means that you have to go. But that's how United op operated then. And with Ten Hag, I think what I would say is in his favour at the moment is that the matchgoers, although they are booing pretty much every home game at the moment, it feels like they are pinning it more on the players than the manager. And you you got a sense of that with Rashford coming on against Chelsea. There were some boos for him. Um, Rashford was cheered off uh, during the derby. Marshall has been cheered off a couple of times this season. There are some players that the supporters would rather go after than the manager. So, all, all th that said, this this is still a very treacherous period. In that, two days before Christmas, West Ham away, twelve thirty kickoff. United's away record. It doesn't fill you with a great deal of hope. And I think the one where it could get quite ugly if they were to lose would be Villa at home on Boxing Day 8pm 
because Villa are pulling ahead of United at the moment. And if Aston Villa are pulling ahead of you and you're losing to them, and uh, you know, goodness knows what situation United could be in going into that game, hopefully for their sake it's a lot more positive than it has been recently. But if if they're staring down a fourth or a fifth defeat on the spin, how 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 can you not oversee a, a change at managerial level? And I say that as someone who would much rather see for United's sake Anthony Marshall get get shot off in, in January. Like the prospect of Marshall outlasting another manager should concern United. And as a point of principle, they you, you think they're inclined to want to stick by Ten Hag. But just when you consider they've lost 20, 12 of their 24 games this season, they've lost as many games as they did in the entirety of last season. I think Ten Hag's situation, it, it feels pretty much unsalvageable now however long he may remain in, in, in post. You have so many unwanted records this season, unfortunately. But I think, talk about supporters, they're, they're sick of this cycle, aren't they? This boom-bust cycle, get a manager, hire him, sack him, player power, and rest in the dressing room. It's the same film, but a different mm. manager, different yeah. director as such. And when, when's it going to stop? I think fans desperately wanted Ten Hag to be, quote-unquote, the one. Um, whoever he is, I guess it remains to be seen because it, this is such a poor season. Um, Regarding the, the wider consequences of this this fallout, then Samuel, financial implications of coming out of the Champions League are going to be huge. At least twenty five million revenue will cost them, and not just that. The, the attraction to players we've talked about United being quote unquote invited guests in the Champions League, and how are you going to sell yourself to these top top players who want to play in Champions League every single season? And United are just in and out. They'll drop in the Europa League. They might not qualify. It's just such a mess. That's the problem that they, you talk about, oh, United have got Champions League football to offer, but the Champions League football they tend to offer to players is just in the group stage. Now, no player wants to be going out of the group stage. The, when you talk about the Champions League nights, you're not, you're not thinking of, oh, that night against Atalanta or that night against Young Boys. It's about the, the knockout stages and really savouring those those occasions, frankly. And, and look, I think that's, as a, as a journalist, I think United being in pot two in, in in recent years has been has been a lot more interesting because the chances of getting a big hitter have have increased, and they have had Juventus in the group stage and Bayern Munich in the group stage, and there has been a sense of occasion about those games. And you, you'd rather that than rather than some humdrum group where um, the, the the opponents are quite underwhelming and the games are, are forgettable. I mean, City have coasted through their group and I can't imagine many neutrals tune in to watch City's matches when, when they're on because it's a foregone conclusion. But with United, that's that's not been the case for, for a long, long time. And as, as you said, I think yeah, the way it's going, it would be a... It, be minor miracle if they were to be in the Champions League next season, but there has to be there has to be structural change. There has to be concrete proof that when they get back into the competition, whenever that may be, they will be they'll be contenders for it, or they're going to be in it. In they're, they're going to go deep into that competition. They're they're, they're not going to go out before Christmas, but that's happened as I said four times in in the last last nine Champions League campaigns they've had. And you know you want to be where, and this this sounds 
those are poor ones to hear this, but want to be where Arsenal are in the sense that Arteta's had his rebuild, he started, it's progressed, and they're now at such a solid stage where they've made great progress in the Premier League, and they're now trying to solidify in Europe. And you look at that team and what he's built, and they've got a really good side that could really push on in Europe this year. Uh, what's that taken three, four years, has it? Um, uh, Arteta was, yeah, he was appointed in what, November, December yeah, 2019. So, I mean, look, there is an argument, obviously, Ten Hag needs time, and he's only had 18 months. Could we see? Tenog taking this in the same time period could United make that progress do you think with Tenog at this point or I think you just alluded to do you think it's got to the point now where maybe the point of no return I think 12, 12 defeats out of 24 and just yeah, the, 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 the issues it's it, it would be huge to come back from that there are not many managers in, in United's history who've, who've come back from um situations are similarly dire to that at the moment their losing percentage is worse than the season when they got relegated and they've lost, that's, that's an incredible they've, stat they've, they've, I think it was Richard Jolly wasn't it yeah, um, surprisingly who um, who came up with that but I can't remember what I was going to say there now as well um, that, that's it. They've, they've lost seven games at home already this season and just however way you look at it as you said I didn't think after the some of the Moyes and the Van Gaal, um, some of the records that have tumbled, tumbled during those eras, that any more records could tumble. But United find spectacular ways of stooping to to new lows. Um, I hate the word, but obviously it's popular. But like the, the, I don't know the whatever the banter era thread on United <laughs> Post Ferguson looks like on Twitter. It, it probably made the site crash because it's so never ending. If if everyone was to um, was to be uh, looking at it simultaneously. There, as well, I said, before you read um, Richard Keyes' blog, each week. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot say that I did, and I cannot. I can't say that I was sorry to see uh, see him leave um, Sky. What was it in crack? It was nearly nearly thirteen years. Ago. Historic, so, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a long, long time ago. You must have been in primary school still, <laughs> I imagine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite quite the segue going from Ten Hag to Richard Keyes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, th- I think if 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 Richard, if we're talking and if we're making that kind of segue, I, I, I think I suppose that gives you an indication of, of how how badly things are at United at the moment. January is just around the corner, then, and we've talked about the implications of coming out of Europe. But they're going to have perhaps try and move on players who are a bit more intent now because they need to raise funds. You've got these kind of Casemiro who. It's exciting that he's back in training, but if he returns... Did you say it's exciting? Well, with the caveat that if he... It's exciting for the United media team. Yeah, but if he returns in the same same form as he was playing earlier in the season... It's a different different picture of someone else in training. (laughs) Well, get a full of him from last season, then that's exciting, isn't it? Because he was fantastic. But I mean, look, Casemiro, um, Rafael Varad, we've talked about these kind of ageing players. Um, Our producers in the corner there holding up a photo of him lifting up the Carabao. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, yeah. Good memories, of course, of February early in the air, which seems like a a very long time ago. I was just about to say, have we airbrushed him from history? Because (laughs) that's not on display anymore. But no, so are we predicting any sales? Do you think you could foresee any? Um, Because I think Saudi Arabia, that's a destination at the moment. They're paying a lot of money for these ageing players. And, yeah, and, that, and there's one club that seemed to have sold a player to Saudi Arabia for a bag of peanuts, whereas everyone else is getting millions for them, which is United. Because obviously Alex Tellers went there and you thought... I mean, you're not going to get millions for Alex Tellers, <laughs> Samuel. No, no <laughs> naively, naively, I thought United could make a profit on him because he's a Brazil international and he'd, he'd just 
started in the Europa League final with Sevilla when they won it and I think they paid about 13, 13.8 yeah, million for it. Four back or was it around that four? But it was like they, they got five million for him. Right, yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, even when it comes to flogging players to Saudi clubs, United so far have not been particularly good at that. Who are the biggest sales in the last the last five, no, 10, 15? Well, United. Or... Yeah, because Dan James ranks pretty highly. And he's 25 million I think, I think I think Daniel James is in the, he might be in the top five sales of United's yeah, history. The, the most expensive sale is Ronaldo, which was a world record and 80 million. And even with that, they they should they should have been pillaging Real Madrid for Iron Robin and Wesley Snyder, and they, they didn't. Uh, Lukaku was about 70 million, just yeah. above 70 million, but there was a loss on him. Uh, Angel Di Maria went for about 45 million to PSG, I think. Uh, loss on him a year on from signing him for 59.7 from Real Madrid. David Beckham, as a lot of people might have seen from the recent Netflix series, 25 million was was a joke of a fee that Real Madrid got for him. Um, I think was it Florentino Perez, even at the time he's quoted as saying, that, oh, they're selling him for peanuts. But they couldn't believe that the most marketable, most famous football player on the planet who was one year into a five-year Man United contract and would have been 28 at the time uh, was was going for 25 minutes. It, it was a ludicrously low fee, but Ferguson just wanted shots of him. And Dan James was 25 million with uh, 5 million in add-ons. And that, that is just the, the anomaly because Marcelo Bielsa had this weird fixation or obsession with, with Daniel James. So United thought, crikey, you don't, wow, we've cut 25 million for him. But they could have probably sold Jesse Lingard for 30 million that summer. Why is that though? Because that just shows you've listed them off. That's, it's happened over the years. Over two I know, decades, yeah, I've said years. before, it's, it's been, it goes back to Ferguson. Sellers, yeah. goes back to Ferguson's um, days. But there, there was a period as well where they would occasionally get a decent fee. I mean, this is very, very niche, but I remember uh, David Healy, who barely had a kick in the United first team. And I think it was, it was just before Christmas in 2000. He was in the squad against Ipswich because I think York, Cole, Sheringham, they, they were all either suspended or injured. And they played Solskjaer on gigs up front. Solskjaer scored twice, United won quite easily. But Healy came on, was this academy striker who would have been about 19 or 20, 21 possibly. And he hit the post, uh, he looked quite good. And United sold him literally a week later to Preston for maybe one and a quarter million, one and a half million. And that was canny of Ferguson because he saw a game was won. I'm going to put this kid in. He did quite well. His value went up and Preston, who were in the division below, division one, um, gave United a seven-figure fee for him. Yeah. Like In this adjusted for inflation, he probably would have gone for about, if United were good at selling, they'd have probably got 15 million for him now. A bit like how, how City are operating with, with their yeah. academy. So once upon a time, there was an occasion where they could get a decent fee for for a young player. But they were they were screwed pretty much. I, I did a big piece on this in August or September um, but the Van Gaal summer where he came in and he just wanted rid of anyone and everyone and it, he did not care what money they got in for it. And because there was no FFP um, issues for United, then they didn't really care what they got. And it was like, right, yeah, get rid of him, get rid of him. Wilfred Zaha, three million, even though we paid 15 million for him 18 months ago. Yeah, fine, go back to Crystal Palace. Um, 
So th- they've set a standard there and a precedent where clubs know you're not good at selling players. You give them away for next to nothing. We're going to wait it out and see what see um, how we get on. And you look in the summer, they sold a lot of players, but they didn't get many impressive fees. The Fred fee was was decent, but then they undermined that by giving Fenerbahce about five million for Alte Bayendir, who has still not not had a kick and he will in January because uh, the way it's going Andre Nana is probably going to go to the to the AFCON with, with Cameroon but in terms of the players next month Sancho has to go Van der Beek has told, been told he can go they would let Marshall go uh, because they need a striker in and if you get him out you've got the leverage to get a striker in that's with or without Ineos really they, they, if they've not got a plan for in the event that Ineos have not had their minority state ratified, then the people might as well just clock out for good. Uh, Varane and Casemiro, two players, if they receive silly money for them, they have to have to accept or, or certainly consider it at the very least. Because look, look at the, the FFP situation. I mean, Ty is, is more the authority on this. I don't know if he did a piece on it, but... He was saying the other day, he thinks that they are... And, and United people at United have said FFP is tight. And they said there's not a great deal of difference between the Premier League's profitability and sustainability rules and UEFA's FFP. But you saw the statement from the Premier League this week um, about amortisation, which is a way Chelsea have been trying to get around FFP by giving average players eight-year contracts who they're spending £80 million, £100 million pounds on. And it's, it's getting tighter. And that's why, I mean, United wanted to spend more in the summer, but they couldn't because of FFP. One of the reasons that they're impacted by that is because they are rubbish at selling players. And they have been for, what, 25 years. I'm, I'm, I'm going back. Um, not, not, maybe not 25 years, but uh, you know, 20 years at the very least. The Beckham deal was in 2003. Um, you know, when when Solskjaer was at the club, of, of course, the, the season before they won the treble, I think Tottenham had a five million pound offer accepted for him, and United signed him for about one and a half million two years ago. So that was a big, big profit they would have made on him, but he didn't want to go. But back then, they could attract fees for unwanted players or players on the fringes because there was there was no reputational damage of playing for Man United now. A player incurs quite a lot of reputational damage by playing for Man United. Quite a lot, for yeah. fair to say. Uh, leave it there for part two. We've battled over for part three. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast now. Just a quick advert. Uh, we have a free Amazon Prime trial for United's game against Aston Villa on Boxing Day. So if you head to the description in this video or head to our social channels to find out more details on that. Um, but to the football again, Samuel, <laughs> the small task of Are they playing. throwing the Deadwood off the squad out there? <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're unsure how much this is coming into the audio, but I presume quite a bit the work outside. Clearly better than United than getting rid of the Deadwood. Anyway, Samuel, uh, Sunday afternoon, Liverpool, Anfield. A small task of playing the league leaders and uh, fierce rivals. Liverpool have won 7-0, like, as I said, in, in 4-0 the last two visits. I, f- I think for all the are top of the league, they're probably not playing the best football they've ever played. Um, people are wondering where they're at uh, in that sense. But United are in awful form. 
and we're heading across there the Merseyside it's going to be tough that is a, an understatement United are winless there in their last eight they've scored once during that period which was a goalkeeping error uh, by Alisson it was also in the manager's last game Mourinho's last game and Liverpool have scored 18 during that time and as you just said there have been a couple of real thumpings there and in, in fairness the, the raw at Anfield started in, in Ferguson's twilight years I think United have won three of their last 17 there in their previous 17 games at Anfield they won nine their record was actually pretty good before it was the start of the 2008-9 season when they they lost 2-1 it might have been Dimitar Berbatov's debut but that from that period in Ferguson's last years, United got bullied in midfield and it was I think at the time you saw it as because United were either the champions or they were runners up and so it was always champions or almost champions. And Liverpool were these also runs who had Roy Hodgson as manager and brought back Kenny Dalglish as manager um, and had Rafael Benitez going on his you know, paranoid fax run. Um, Liverpool were always the underdogs and it was just seen as oh this is you know, classic underdog form as, as was the case with United in the 70s and 80s they had some very famous wins against Liverpool at Old Trafford and at Anfield when Liverpool were, were the dominant force in English football and sometimes you know, the tables turned that you know, the underdogs just you know, really pumped up and they, they get up for a game and they play out of their skin and they get the win um, United over the last you know, this this streak dates back to I think the last time United won at Anfield was Klopp's first game in the fixture. And since then, Liverpool have been unbeaten under him um, at home against United. And of course, during that period, Liverpool have been the more successful side than United. So that whole logic of the underdog getting themselves up for a game, it's not happened at Anfield. It has at Old Trafford a couple of times. It certainly did last season in, in Ten Hag's first win and we were discussing off air just before we came on about that game and I remember saying at the time that because Liverpool had had a pretty iffy start to the season drawing against Fulham and drawing against Crystal Palace at home you just thought maybe maybe United are playing them at the right time even though United just come off that generational idea of the 4-0 um, pummeling at, at Brentford and United were terrific that night that that was the, the, the real Man United if you like the, the way they playing that first half, the spirit they showed, the the determination, the commitment, uh, the, the, the quality of, of the first goal. It's it's still probably the loudest roar I've heard Old, uh, Old Trafford in terms of uh, a raw greeting, a goal scored ironically by Jaden Sancho, who, who will play absolutely no part Anfield on, on Sunday unless, unless Eric Ten Hag gives us an announcement in a couple of hours' time that makes us fall off our chairs. So it, it looks pretty grim going into it. It's I, I did a piece in the week and I think for the first time ever I I couldn't I couldn't think of a headline for it. Um we have this like like kind of like in joke that of, of the three Ps of publishable, popular, um positive. It was publishable, but it, it's not going to be popular with United fans and it's it's not positive and um, this is the problem I, I just I said to our editor I said look I, I can't put I really cannot put a positive spin on this that I that I believe in it's you know the situation is unfortunately for United it's bleak it's 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 their own fault it's their own fault us causing causing us to write such a negative press as was referenced <laughs> in the match day 
program in midweek by by a cheerleader. And uh, look, I, I look at the team United could probably put out, probably will put out, and I I will be absolutely astonished if if they come away from Anfield with a respectable result. I think supporters would take one 0 last now, which says all oh, that's so grim going <laughs> against Liverpool. I mean, United could potentially have ten players out. We talked about the injuries to Maguire and Shaw. We'll get updates on them at the press. Who's conference. that? Maguire, Shaw, Martinez, Malassia, Lindelof. Still a question. Yeah, Lindelof, Lindelof obviously three and doing the week. Casemiro, Eriksen, Mount Ahmed, and, and Fernandez, who is suspended. Um, Ahmed's back in. He is training, injured, but will he be fit? That's what I mean. Question mark potentially. Um, I'm not including Sancho in that for, for obvious no, reasons. No. So look, it's, it's a bit of a grim list. It could be eight players up to, up to ten. Um, we were just discussing what they're going to do for the midfield. I mean, his hands are tied, really. Um, I think Kobe Mane probably has to start yeah that's it? the thing Mane has to start you've got Scott McTominay uh, Sofian Amrabat and obviously Hannibal Medfrey as well regarding who actually plays in that number 10 role who replaces Fernandez, Hannibal or McTominay I think I'd pick McTominay uh, in that role and I'd probably mm, have Amrabat and Mane I think that's that's going to be his selection yeah. yeah but I think it's going to be one of those starting teams as I said to you where in 10 years time a screenshot of it will resurface <laughs> online and people will love that and think how the hell were we starting those players at Anfield it's a bit like the um, when they beat Arsenal in the cup in 2011 and it was how the hell did they win that game with that midfield which was the De Silva twins on the wings and uh, Darren Gibson and John O'Shea in midfield and United won 2-0 in in the FA Cup quarterfinals against Arsenal but that that was that was the their good good fortune of having probably the greatest man manager that the game has ever known who could just absolutely rinse the absolute maximum from from his players because he was an absolute genius I don't think Eric Ten Hag's going to have going to be able to coax a similar performance level from whoever he, he plays on on um, on Sunday I mean for, for the first time in, in months it feels like Varane has to be a certain starter I imagine it'll be and look, I know we've discussed before, you know, maybe play a left back at left back, but I think Dallo at left back and Wambasaka at right back is 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 the likeliest outcome because Reggion, Jesus, there's a reason why Tottenham have not played him since May or April. Well, to when you He's just so gettable yeah. defensively and um yeah, he's, he's he's there's a reason why he's Tottenham's third choice left back as well and uh, United are probably going to have to stick with him just because of the injury issues for the rest of the season even though Tottenham can recall him but you look at Tottenham's position and I suppose they, they'd look at it and think okay we could do the extra body because of our own injury issues but then again they look at him and think look how he's playing at United and he's costing them points and United and Tottenham are, are competing essentially for the same position in the Premier League as the well so from it, yeah, that, that is, there's probably a piece in it like how <laughs> Tottenham loaned a player to Man United and it, it's benefited them in just about every way possible uh, I mean the prospect of Varane and Evans Varane yeah, did did quite well, I thought, in in the week. It's been ridiculous. I you kind of played that down earlier about where the, where the player position wise, but I find, I think that's interesting. I think it's going to be fascinating again to see if Varane if, starts. Yeah, what which, which side, side is on? Yeah. yeah, because if it's Lindelof, Lindelof's been playing on the left, um, and and Ten Hag lists him among, among the players who who is apparently proficient at playing on the left side of defence. So Hard. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So I think if Lindelof's fit, it's probably Lindelof and Varane. I, I mean, he's played he's played Mersbury a couple of times from the start of this season, but it feels like it's been a while since he last started the game. And also, as as much as I, as much as the fans get behind his enthusiasm, he you give him the football and he still doesn't do enough with it. And also, when he came on at Anfield in the Rangnick game, he he was lucky not to be sent off, and he was only on the pitch for about five minutes. He was he was a human wrecking ball. So I think McTominay is probably the logical starter behind Hoyland. And then with the wings, I think it's, it's probably Garnacho and Anthony again. Although if Rashford is fit, I suppose, because he's fresh, inverted commas again, saying that going into the Newcastle game, some people were, look how he performed there. He was he barely ran. Uh, however way you look at it, you think, goodness me, how, how, how have United spent £400 million pounds and they're going to field that team yeah. whatever the whatever team they pick that's going to be the takeaway from it I mean Handel's a really interesting one as well and you think he made back-to-back starts in September for the first time ever in his United career and then it was against Galatasaray when he got brought off a half time time and he's not returned to the team since then he, he started against the Newcastle started against Carlo Cup. Burnley did he start against Crystal Palace, Palace in the, in the Cup? Cup didn't start he's had a league started against Galatasaray and then came out yeah so he's not yeah. since but like, like you say I think the key point is his spirited performances but maybe lacking that quality at this stage anyways he still is very young uh, and if United weren't up against it enough Samuel an extra 7,000 Liverpool fans will be in attendance in the game because we're all oh, on the additional yeah, two the the top, yeah the stand and we've talked a lot of times especially on this podcast about how this dressing room struggles and big atmospheres raucous crowds uh, and it's going to be another example of that it's going to be a test again in, in that sense yes well when they lost there under Rangnick it was 2-0 for quite a long time and United might have had a half chance where they, they threatened to get something out of the game and, and Klopp just went ballistic at the players the players heard him were jolted by him and it was okay let's score a couple of more goals and the, the, the best teams in Europe are doing that to United if United dare to get near them or dare to deny them they just click into gear and they they pull away from them again. Liverpool did it that night. Bayern Munich did it in, in September whenever uh, was required. City have done it before. And the, there's a reason why those teams tend to end up in the latter stages of the Champions League because they're the best teams in Europe and United just aren't in their slipstream. So it, this weekend, I as I said earlier, I I don't think it'll be seven. Should, should, seven I give you a, should I give you a positive then? I'll, I'll invent a positive. The seven invent, invent the seven nil game. They're only losing one nil at half time. Uh, we we all said it as well. Uh, you, you know, viewers, if sorry, listeners, they can they're welcome to go back to the the match day blog if they really want to. And I'll, I was probably quite you know upbeat about United because they they did play quite well in the first half. They um, that the game plan was good. The all they got wrong was that they didn't score and they had about three had three quite good chances it felt like and of course they conceded to Cody Gakpo but certainly coming out at half time I think there was a sense United and United were quite out quite early for the second half there was a sense that they could still get a positive result at Liverpool but then it was just yeah I don't think it's ever really truly been explained how they conceded six goals in one half at Anfield there was just no communication nobody took um, assumed leadership the situation nobody tried to manage the game properly they were just they were a team of individuals in the second half and of course certain individuals didn't didn't exactly help themselves like Fernandes feigning agony and 
and it spiralled with Gary Neville accusing him of one, asking to be brought off when he hadn't asked to be brought off. And I suppose that's that's one thing that will make it worse for the viewers. If Sky do that thing of having Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher co-commentate, it will help. Please don't. It will please, help. I, I can't stand it. It's and and I'm not even watching it live on on the telly, but I don't think anyone wants it. It's just fa- it descends into fans. What, so. Gary Neville's been given a hell for a few mentions on this podcast today. I think that's four now. I know, yeah. I, 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 know, one. I know. Well, they did. I think. Uh, I think on their podcast, they. Uh, I, I listened to it, and Ian Wright said about um, about oh, racing, yeah. the bannings. He said, "I thought, yeah, the Manchester Evening News. That's a nice paper." <laughs> I, mean, I agree, Ian. I left yeah, the comments. Yeah, yeah. Completely true. I, Ian's been last read it in 1996, probably, <laughs> or something. When he, I, I spoke to him at Old Trafford actually briefly uh, the Glazer process before. I ran a Liverpool game. Remember that in oh in was it August twenty two? Yeah, yeah. So that, that that even seems more, more longer than that, doesn't it? It seems like five. Balmy night before. that was. Yes, it certainly was. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Sam. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks to the listeners. Just a quick plug: um, we've got fans football over the air running across on the site where I think I've mentioned Mary Oaks is running in contention for that award. Uh, check out our social channels and finally some good news. We thought we were going to be on a bit of a hiatus with our producer going on holiday. Um, for the Christmas season. However, we'll be back on Monday with a virtual podcast. So now it's all said and done. Have a great weekend and let's hope uh, they get a positive result on Sunday afternoon. Take care.